Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post Senate act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello! And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your etiquette questions on being served raw food, getting called doctor, offering condolences when the recipient might not remember you, ordering politely, and pet-free friend visits. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on prepping for a summer wedding. Coming up... Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont, by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Hey! How's it going, cuz? Oh my goodness. Work overload. I've got a manuscript due in two days to the publisher. woo How's it feel? Uh, well, it feels like like I've created something and I've lived in it for so long now that I feel like I'm coming up for air and I really need to. It's like I need that time away from the material. The part of the writing process and the publishing process where the publisher has the book after you've put it all together and then it'll go through edits. But while they're reading it, it's like... Huge anxiety because this thing you've worked on for so long and, and so in-depth, it's there and it's in someone else's hands and you can't control it then, even though you know you're going to talk with them and work on it and everything. I was so curious what you were going to say because book <laughs> deadlines are a thing. Oh, my goodness. It really is. It's been a focus. I'm excited to put my focus elsewhere. It's fun after you've been in-depth on something for so long to change it up and to bring in other voices, to bring in other perspectives, to to no longer have it be just yours. It's so nice to see the product of your efforts. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and it's also nice to share the experience of approaching a deadline, of taking a book across those final hurdles. It really is. For me, what was really nice is how much etiquette you and I used in our session, editing session yesterday. You know, it's like I've, I've been really tied into this topic and Dan's been been running things while I've been given the time to really dive into this. And it was really wonderful to have you treat my perspective and my experience with this material with care. So because you and I are both responsible for what we put out to the world from the Emily Post Institute. So this is a team effort, um, you know, despite how the workload goes. And it was really nice to have you kind of hold with care what I have done at this point. (laughs) Up to this point. I should thank our listeners because we got that great question a couple weeks ago about Someone who had been approached to give feedback on a book that they didn't want to. And it got me thinking about the feedback process. I was thinking about this show a bunch when I was holding your manuscript, making (laughs) edits, thinking about how to talk to you about them. And 
the advice that we gave to ask someone what kind of feedback it's they're helpful. looking for. Yeah. I, I heard my own advice in my mind as I was thinking about that no, whole totally. situation. And with you, I was really at the point where what I needed was to make sure what I was writing had flow and clarity. And it's always hard when you hand someone something that you've written to explain where you were at when you were writing it and and just where you're at now. And it's it's hard to have that come back at you with this has to change or that's not clear. I didn't understand this. And it was so good, though, because it makes you take a minute, go back, rework it, find the flow, find the clarity so that you're communicating what you want to communicate really well and effectively. And so I really appreciated that because because it makes me feel more confident about what I'm turning in. Well, I'm really excited for you and for all the edits that will happen over the next month or two as you get it into a polished and final product stage. With the publisher, it's this is a fun next stage. So I had one announcement about last week's show. Yes. We had a problem with our feed last we week. We did. And I want to apologize to everyone who was looking for Awesome Etiquette on Monday and didn't find it. We published our show on our usual platform, and for some reason, the show itself didn't populate to the RSS feed. Oh. So it was available on our website, but not all of the usual podcast apps that you're used to finding Awesome Etiquette on. So I apologize for the delay, and thank you to the folks that alerted us to the problem so that we were able to address it. Even with deadlines and and show glitches to fix and such things, I am excited to spend the next couple hours here with you, cuz, answering questions and going through our show. Let's get to it. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, Mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. 
Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette so that we know you want your question on the show. Dan, I am totally tossing this first one to you because I am stumped and I titled the question LP is stumped because I'm stumped. I don't know what I would do. And every time I tried typing an answer, I was like, I don't know. Was he post at a loss for words? I am really, I'm at a loss for words. I am the person right now wanting to do the great escape. The like, let's just tell the white lie and get out of the situation easily. Like I am admitting that. All right. Hello, awesome etiquette. I recently had a coworker come over for dinner after he volunteered to cook for us. He served us a beef dish, which he told us would be cooked rare after confirming that we would be fine with that. When it was served to us, it was clear to me and my wife that it was still raw, but my coworker was determined that it was ready. I think my coworker's honest perception was that it was just cooked rare, but I'm convinced most people would say this was raw meat. Wanting to be polite, my wife and I simply ate the dish, but neither one of us returned for seconds. As of the writing of this email, we feel fine and have had no major health issues, but I would rather not want to put myself in a situation where I have to choose between being polite or raising concern regardless of people's opinions. Could you offer advice on either A, how to politely decline food, or B, how to politely suggest that it might be undercooked? It would especially be helpful if you could offer pointers on dealing with someone who might get defensive or offended if you were to even imply that their dish is undercooked. Thank you. So when you first told me that you had a question that had you totally stumped, I was imagining something with a a deep moral quandary. (laughs) No. I'm curious. What is it about this question that was such a hook for you? Yeah. It's what our, our question asker, Anonymous, has done is that he and his wife had the moment where they kind of suggested that maybe it was still a little undercooked. Like they did the tiptoe gentle version and they got, no, 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 that's the way it's supposed to be served, you know, and Right there is that moment where, oh, no, no, that's the way it's supposed to be served, should be followed up with, if that makes you uncomfortable, I'm happy to cook it a little bit more. That didn't happen. So now Anonymous and his wife are in this position of going, oh, crud, now we're either continuing to, like... Decline someone's generous offer. They are a guest in our home cooking for us. Oh, my goodness. It just starts to feel uncomfortable, Dan. I'm Maybe maybe I'm worn out from the manuscript writing, but I'm telling you, I'm feeling the, the discomfort. There's a lot of host-guest dancing going on a here. A lot. And it's a co-worker situation. This isn't your best friend. You can't like be like, dude, you may love it like that, but I don't love it like that. I'm going to heat mine up a little bit more, which is perfectly appropriate with like, your best friend, you know. And you're getting close to the place where I would start the etiquette advice. <laughs> Lay it on me. <laughs> I, like you, picked up on the defensive and offended part of the the question yeah. because it's that defensive attitude that tells you that someone's starting to feel offended and you don't want to offend someone. Right. And you don't want to inspire those <laughs> hair on my backup reactions from someone. This is a critical feedback question. It's funny that we've been talking about that a lot because it's a different kind of critical feedback. I think you try to keep your good humor. Yeah. And the the two 
framings that I heard in the question. How do you politely decline the food or suggest that it's undercooked? I would try to avoid both of those. I agree. I would instead focus on the way I like my meat cooked. And that way you're not saying this isn't a good way to do it or this is wrong. You're just saying my preference is meat that's a little better cooked. And it's why restaurants offer you options in terms of how you get your meat cooked because different people like it different ways. And a chef, a cook, I would say should know and appreciate that. And you take your guests and the people you're cooking for's preference into account. Can I ask a question? Please. Okay. So when we're at that point where you want to say something, do you think the best avenue is to first start with those feelings of I'm uncomfortable with this or to go with another avenue we often tell people about, which is curiosity? Oh, I'm curious. This is more rare than I am I am used to. Is this a specialty of this dish? You know, which kind of sounds a little bit more like like one way you could go, because if if you get the answer about, oh, this is just how this dish is supposed to be, I feel like now you're jumping a second hurdle of having to say, I don't feel comfortable with that. But I feel like if you just straight up jump to, I don't feel comfortable with this dish, my preferences are like this, or I would prefer it cooked this way. It's almost like too soon of a, I'm not ready for what you're serving me. <laughs> like <laughs> I hear you. I think you, you open up the discussion a little bit. Okay. And see how it goes. And if someone's really defensive, really... No, this is the way it is. This is the way I like to cook. This is the way I like to prepare it and serve it. Then you fall back on this is just the way I prefer it. You take the pressure off them. You stick more to your preferences and tastes. And if they're open to a discussion about how the food is prepared and cooked, then you could walk through that door also. (laughs) I actually really like this question because (laughs) it gets at something that bothers me, which is how rare – Beef is being served at restaurants today. Yeah. Our grandfather used to love the perfect medium rare piece of steak. Okay. And I often order food medium rare. And I found that ordering food medium rare, it comes out rarer and rarer and rarer yep. these days. There's this idea that you just put a sear on a steak and you give it to someone, mm-hmm. what I consider to be rare yeah. <laughs> or very rare. And I think it's perfectly okay. I'm, you're, you're talking to someone today. You're hearing someone today who sent food back and yeah. sends food back and says, could you cook this a little more? I would really enjoy it if it was a little better done. Right. And so I like the opportunity to say that's okay to do. Yes. It really is. It's, it's a question <laughs> of preference and it's not a hard thing for a no. kitchen to accomplish or a chef to, to do for you to cook food a little bit more if it's really going to help you enjoy it. We do talk about how, you know, you good etiquette is not about eating something that you feel might make you sick. If you are if you have dietary restrictions or something like that, that that prevent you from eating something, that's, you know, one thing that you should feel confident standing up for. But there is a certain level of I'm not comfortable with eating that. And I think it is important to be able to stand up for that because I'm I'm having that moment where I picture myself like someone serves me steak tartare that I don't particularly care for, but it's supposed to be served this way. And if I felt confident enough doing my no thank you portion and taking my no thank you bite to see if my own taste had changed, I would do that. But if I really didn't, I would lean on exactly what you're saying, Dan, which is to say, oh, I so appreciate the delicacy of this dish. However, I must admit that I am I am not adventurous enough or I just I'm feeling myself stop at this one. I hope that you'll understand because I don't think if it really is that thing where you're going to try to put it in your mouth and you're going to gag or you're going to be constantly worried if you're going to get sick, you're probably going to make yourself sick. And you're not going to enjoy the meal. And that's the point. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. 
you also bring up something else, the safety question, safety trumps etiquette. Oftentimes with a piece of steak or a piece of whole beef, it's really okay if the center is a little raw as long as there is a sear. If you're talking about hamburger or ground meat, you really want to have it cooked more or cooked all the way through. I've also noticed burgers are getting served more and more rare. And unless that's really freshly ground steak, there are potential health questions there. and. Canada has laws about that. When you start to cross the line into that, I don't feel safe, absolutely speak up, take care of yourself. That's your job and your responsibility at the mm-hmm. table. A parting thought that yes. I want to leave because we could talk about how you cook meat all day. And in fact, it's a favorite topic at our holiday gatherings. Is this <laughs> roast beast done well? No matter how polite you are, you can't control someone else's reactions. Someone might take offense or be bothered that you don't like the thing that they've cooked, but it's not up to you to then like the thing that they cook just so that they feel better if you really don't like it. And you can be polite about how you handle it. You can do your best. You can take the no thank you portion. You can eat around the edges. You can try to talk about it well. Try to get it cooked more. (laughs) might get defensive. They might get upset. They might feel bothered that you didn't like it as much as they did. And at some point... That's really their choice if you've handled yourself well. Anonymous, we hope that this helps with future situations, especially loved you giving us the opportunity to talk about how to handle this situation when the other person isn't picking up on the cues and isn't being helpful and and, uh, getting you to a solution where everyone can enjoy the meal. So thank you for the opportunity, and we hope your next dining experience is more palatable. Abundant protein-rich meat contributes to the well-being and strength of our people and our country. Meat is a favorite with almost everyone. How can you be sure? Our next question is, Dr. 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 Caitlin. Hi, I'm a physician in Tennessee and have run into something commonly at work. Male physicians of any age and older female physicians tend to be referred to as doctor, whereas I, as a younger-appearing female physician, will be referred to by drug reps and staff and nurses by my first name. How do I stop this without offending people or seeming arrogant? I worked hard for my MD and want to be referred to appropriately in a work setting. Thanks. Sincerely, I'm really a doctor. Oh, I'm really a doctor. I am so sorry. This is a frustrating part of having a a youthful appearance and oftentimes being a young female in the workplace. And I think that because uh, you're referencing the medical staff that you interact with at various levels within the hospital, I think that that we're really in a vein of saying you're at work. This is your title at work. This designates you in terms of who you are and what responsibilities that you might carry, um, especially if these conversations are happening in front of uh, patients that you might care for. It's important for the patient to know whether you are a doctor, a nurse, you know, one of the other members of the staff at the hospital, of which there are many. So I actually think this is an important thing for you to stand up for. There are some doctors out there who don't want to be designated as doctor. We have a family friend who goes by Just Dave so much that the nurses put Just Dave on his name tag just because <laughs> it was a fun a fun joke and a wonderful preference that he had. But you worked hard for that degree. You're in a setting where it is important that your designation is recognized, and I think you should feel confident standing up for that. When and how you choose to do it, I think, is going to be the trick. And I think it's going to vary situation to situation. I say with people that are one-off encounters, just a quick reminder right in the moment. 
Just help them out. Tell them the the title, the way that you prefer to be addressed. Sure. So if I said to you like, oh, well, thanks a lot, Caitlin. Or Caitlin, could you please take care of the such and such in room such and such? You know, here at the hospital, I really appreciate it when people call me doctor last name. Nice. And that's it. You just have to do it. And when you're light and Dan didn't have any kind of like... You know, I really appreciate it because I worked for this degree if you'd call me doctor. Or, actually, I'm a doctor. Like, that's not the attitude. I do prefer it if you use doctor so-and-so. That's it. I think with people that you interact with on a more regular basis, Mm -hmm. so I'm calling these the regulars or repeat offenders, Mm -hmm. you might have a longer discussion. You might, particularly if you're breaking a habit, that's happened over time, mm-hmm. need to say things more than once or get into some of those explanations. Talk about how much you appreciate it if people call you this or you could open that discussion by saying, you know, there's something we've never talked about before. Mm-hmm. But when I'm at work, I really appreciate it if people use my title as a doctor. It helps for whatever the reason is. And maybe it's just because that's the way you prefer it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because it helps establish your standing. Maybe it's because it helps people recognize the role that you're playing in that situation. And the addition that I would make to that is that because hospitals do tend to be places of hierarchy, and depending on if it's a teaching hospital, that might be going on as well, that I would make sure that if I'm correcting someone that I try to find a more private moment to do it in. There may be times where it is important in the moment to actually make the correction, but you can, for instance, inform a patient, you know, actually, I do prefer to go by this when your attending isn't around or something like that. And it, it's there are certain ways that you might pick and choose your moments to do it based on the hierarchy of the people that you're interacting with. And also just simply based on not correcting people in the moment when others are present to see it. We do try our best to, to create private moments of correction. Do your best to figure out when you have that opportunity and when it's maybe not available to you. Sticking with that theme of hierarchy, I would also say that sometimes having a supervisor or someone that manages a floor or a staff talk to people might be another way to get that word out broadly and save you the trouble (laughs) of talking to a lot of different people. Maybe a floor manager can very quickly at the next meeting take care of it with just a quick mention. Allies are also good when you have friends and and people within the the hospital who you can say, you know, you can have that moment where you have the conversation of saying, boy, you know, this happens a lot and it really bothers me. I, I wish we could spread the word. And, you know, maybe they'll spread the word, maybe they won't. But at least you put it out there that you don't mind if the word is spread, that you prefer to be called doctor. Really a doctor, it is well within the bounds of good etiquette to want to be called what you like to be called. So you should feel confident talking to people about this, and we hope that you find it easier in the future. Whatever your name is, that title doctor sounds mighty good in front of it. But maybe you've heard that getting into med school is no snap. It isn't if you're a dolt, but you're not. Our next question is titled Condolences from Out of the Blue. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. My son's boss passed away recently, and I wanted to send his widow a sympathy card. I met the two of them at a holiday party a couple of years ago, but I don't think she would remember me, as there were a lot of guests in attendance. I thought I would add Jack's mother-in-law after my name. It feels a bit awkward, but I guess that's better than not knowing who the sender of the card is, right? The complicating factor is that my mother would like to include her name on the card also. She too has met the widow, but again, that was several years ago, and she wouldn't remember her either. 
How can I identify her? She's technically my daughter's grandmother, so Jack's grandmother doesn't seem quite right. How would you suggest I phrase it? I really appreciate any advice on this. Thanks for a wonderful podcast. Anonymous. Anonymous, first I want to applaud you for maintaining the tradition of sending sympathy or condolence notes. It's a really nice thought at a time that can often be difficult for someone to hear from a really broad community that felt touched or impacted by the person who died. It's really nice for people to know that people are thinking about them at what can be a really difficult time. So I want to give you all the courage and um, support in getting this note out the door. In terms of the particular question that you've asked, I think that you can include that information in the body of the note itself rather than try to amend your name Mm -hmm. with relationships and and points of connection. That's really what the personalization of the note is there for and it's a really useful thing. It also gives you something to mention or talk about that you're going to establish (laughs) this connection in your note and it's – it's not just a good place to do it. It's 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 going to help that person make those connections that you want them to make. Absolutely. You might write something like, Dear Mrs. So-and-so, my mother Doreen and I would like to offer you our sincerest condolences upon hearing of Bob's passing. We had the pleasure of meeting you and Bob through my son-in-law, Jack Kindheart. I like we'll the make name. Up the name. At a holiday party a few years ago, our thoughts are with you, and we hope that you are surrounded by loved ones and, you know, supported at this time. A note like that would be a perfect way to reclue her into who you are and, and, and why there's any connection between the two of you. Because especially at a time when you're grieving, you forget all kinds of... I mean, you just do. You are, you're in the throes of it, and your life is changing. I really like that. The the description of the relationship and what inspired you to send the note is exactly what you want to communicate in a situation like this. Anonymous, thank you for the question. Good luck with your condolence note. Our next question is about polite ordering. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. Longtime listener, first-time advice seeker. I love your podcast and think you're both fabulous. Thank you. I'm only about 135 episodes in, but have been (laughs) binging over the past few months and can't say enough how wonderful it is to hear such kind approaches to everyday etiquette dilemmas. I've had a weird fascination with etiquette since my high school days, about 30 years, but your podcast has helped raise the bar and each episode inspires me in different and wonderful ways. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you. Now my question. When ordering at a restaurant, I find it most polite to begin by saying, may I please have, rather than the somewhat standard, I'll have blah, 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 or worse, give me the yada, yada, yada. Yes, I'm a Seinfeld fan too. (laughs) I cringe inside whenever I hear these poor displays of etiquette and have taught my son to use the more polite, may I please have. It sounds delightful coming out of his teenage mouth. I bet. I'm sorry to say it is rare that I hear any of my dining companions order in what I feel is the polite way. Is there actually etiquette about this, or am I overthinking it? Could this be a personal pet peeve that no one else cares about? I feel like I know the answer, but have not heard the specific question addressed yet, and would love to hear your input. Many thanks and well wishes on whatever you're both up to. I hope to catch up to the latest episode soon to find out. 
Very best regards, Polite Diner. I loved this question. It's really sweet. And immediately it gets at that wonderful grammatical correction that most of our our, uh, adults in our lives have have given us, my mother in particular, which is anytime I would say, can I have, she would say, I don't know, can you? And I would know that that was the indication to say, may I please have? The only way I can remember this Mm -hmm. is... May I have this dance? I don't know. Can, Can you, you tango? <laughs> one is about ability. One is about permission. Exactly. And you are indeed right. Saying, may I please have the such and such or may I please have a such and such is the perfect way. It is a, a wonderfully polite way to order. And I can tell you that we do hear from a lot of restaurant staff. And having both worked in restaurants, Dan and I would agree that it is really, really nice when customers and diners pay attention to the language that they use and the tone that they use and um, even sometimes the gestures that they use in order to interact with their servers. And so I love that you've brought this subject up for us. May I please have is definitely the most polite way to place an order. I would say that I'll have the such and such is also polite. It doesn't include the may I. But I think that a lot of times servers will ask for your order in a way where this is a very polite response. You're in this moment of engagement. You're both kind of playing your part. What would you like to have? I'd love to have the, or I'll have the, exactly. What would you like? I'd like the, exactly. It's it's very easy. It's light. It's a part of the conversation. The place where we get away from it is the gimme's. Give me the such and such. I want. I want the such and such. You know, wanting things isn't bad at all, but the way that you say it, um, and I think that, that this is one of those places where you take the time to think about the many options you have and to try to pick the one that's going to be the most polite and, and build kind of the kindest relationship for this short hour and a half interaction or half hour interaction. It's so nice to have a range of options. Right? You can default up to higher levels of formality with more structured language and... Formal settings sometimes encourage that, you know, different things. I think that tone is so important. Looking people in the eye is so important. Magic words can completely transform an interaction. A please at the end of a request or at the end of a question really turns it into a polite request. Mm -hmm. A thank you when something arrives. Um, Eye contact that is made and sustained for just a moment when you say your pleases or your thank yous will transform an interaction. And Emily Post used to talk about it being a measure of someone's etiquette, how they treated service staff, wait staff, people that were there to provide service for you in almost any capacity. Right. It's wonderful to be self-reflective and paying attention to this. The place where it can be harder is when you're getting upset with the people around you for not doing it. And that's one of those places where I always look for a, a moment where it can be a topic of conversation as opposed to something where I'm correcting or even... I don't want to say forcibly, but like presenting knowledge to people with a heavy hint or something like that. Like you you want to find the moments where you can just discuss the way we treat the people in our lives and that you can bring to the light to the conversation. The idea that I've always noticed a big difference when I use the phrase, may I please with servers. You want it to come up in those conversational moments and then let people be inspired to use it. But I think you want to refrain from correcting your friends or telling 
them that they are wrong for not doing it that way. Um, with very close friends, we're always happy to try to point out how we can be better, but it, it's a fine line. And I think that that's as far as I would go in terms of correcting others' behaviors. Love that you're instilling it in your son. Modeling that behavior might have as big an impact as anything yes. that you can do. Just being that way is transformational for yeah. people that you're with. It is. I want to second my cousin's thought that you do have standing to talk to a couple people about these kinds of things, and that's usually your children. Yes. <laughs> and it sounds like you've done some really some really good work there. It's nice to hear that you are able to see it and enjoy it in his behavior. Thank you for bringing us this question, Polite Diner. We hope you enjoy your catch-up episodes between 135 and the present. Kids don't need manners. Manners are just for grown-ups. I think you're wrong about that. Someday you'll find it out. Our next question is a classic pet owner. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's titled Pet Free Visits. Lizzie and Dan, my husband and I recently moved into a brand new house. Not just brand new to us, but we are the first people to ever live in it as we worked with a builder to build it. It is our first home, and we have been busy furnishing it and picking out finishes. I should also admit that my husband and I are not pet people. We don't even have a fish, and we have no desire to ever have dogs or cats. Recently, we've had several friends stay the weekend with us at our home. I love hosting people, and the guest room is one of the only rooms in our house that is complete. The only problem is that our friends have dogs and usually ask if they can bring their animals to our home to stay as well. Given the fact that we have a brand new home with brand new furniture and are simply not pet people, is it rude to politely let our guests know that their pets cannot stay in our home? We have recently felt guilty about declining to extend our open home invitation to our guest pets, but I know that my husband and I would both be nervous wrecks with animals in our home. What's a good hostess to do? Sincerely, Pet Free. Pet Free, congratulations on your new home. That is so exciting. I was sitting here sort of making little <laughs> gestures as I heard. The idea of a brand, brand new home is is um, really delightful. Well, and I'm I'm thinking of like a friend of mine who's designing and building her home right now and just how involved that process is and how much when I buy a new piece of furniture or do something in my home or even just clean it. How much I do not want something else coming in and ruining that. And people's pets are wonderful, but they're other people's pets. And you you not being a pet owner are not going to appreciate the amount of hair or the potential messes that might occur, no matter how good, wonderful, and awesome that pet is. And as pet owners, Dan and I both understand both the love of our pets and the, the negative impact that other people just don't need to absorb because it's not their pet. You ask, is it rude to politely let other guests know that their pets cannot stay in your home? Absolutely not. In fact, politely letting guests know what the parameters for their visit are is your job as a host. It's incumbent upon you as a host to help your guests be good guests. And that's information that's critical, particularly if someone thinks they're going to be bringing a pet with them. And truthfully, like I as a pet owner, I have some some friends homes that, that Benny is not allowed in. And most people know Benny comes with me everywhere. But at the same time, as annoying as it might be for me or where it might actually make me not be able to travel for a weekend if I can't get someone to take care of them, I 
also really have no desire to make someone feel uncomfortable or to have me leave a home and have the thought be, oh, I really don't want to do that again when I leave. Not from me, but from my hosts. I don't want to be thinking as a guest that my host might be thinking that. So, yes, let them know up front. And here's the great thing. You can offer ways for them to still come on the visit but not stay with you. And that's really one of the go-to solutions when you choose to you, – you're talking about a weekend. You've even offered your home. And then they say, I'd love to bring Rover. You can now say, oh, you know, I, I love him so much and I know that he's at your side all the time. However, we really aren't a pet household. And so I would love to suggest that if you want to bring Rover up to Vermont for the weekend, we'd love to have you all, but we'd we'd want to set up an Airbnb or, you know, find a pet friendly bed and breakfast or hotel. That that would be the way to let someone know. Or we're happy to have you come, Sans Rover. I'm not offended. <laughs> okay, good, because it's not as it's not as flowery and delicately uh, delicately danced around a subject as some of the other things we do. No, sometimes it's about setting boundaries and. You've got to be clear about that. And I would say be prepared for that to impact their decision about coming. Yeah. For some people, you, you mentioned it in your example earlier. Sometimes it means you can't go. Yeah. You can't find a place for him. You can't kennel him or find a dog sitter at home and you know that he can't come with you. And that means that your options are fewer. And I think that when you have these kind of boundaries and hard limits, they become limits. And you need to be ready for that discussion also. But I don't think that's impolite in any way. Most pet owners want to know whether their animal is welcome or not, so they're not expecting for you to say yes. They're hoping for you to, and they might be disappointed, and they might not be good at at hiding that disappointment when they find out. But they are asking the question because they understand the answer might be no. It is okay for you to provide that no or thank you for asking. We'd prefer it if you didn't. The hard hurdle is when they haven't asked and they just make the assumption and then you have to make the correction of, oh, I'm so sorry. We didn't discuss this earlier. You know, I'd prefer it if we didn't invite Rover on this trip. That's an easier way of of getting around it when they aren't asking the question and kind of giving you the easy no. You were looking for the sample language. Yeah. I like the idea of we're so enjoying our pristine new home. We're making an effort to keep it like that. Pretty much the exact same framing that you gave us in this question yes. is a great way to have this discussion, particularly at this moment in your life. Yeah, it offers Pet Free's perspective on the situation, that it's not not because of the dog themselves, but because of the impact that might happen on the home. Pet Free, we hope that this helps and we hope you have many a fun Pet Free visit in the future. Penny, you're a bad dog, says Frank. We don't love you anymore. That's right. Go into your house and stay there. And if we had taken time to play with him, perhaps he wouldn't have been so much trouble. Thank you for sending us your questions. Please send us updates and comments or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or you can hit us up on Twitter and Facebook. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette so we know you want your question on the show. Each week, we like to hear your thoughts about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today's feedback begins, Dear Awesome Everyone at Awesome Etiquette, <laughs> Greetings and grateful salutations from the listening Podverse. 
my husband and I enjoy listening to questions, then pausing the podcast to discuss our thoughts before we listen to yours. I've heard a lot of people like to listen to the show that way. It's fun. We should create a game. I had a thought about flying first class when your fellow business travelers are not from episode 187. If I were able to carry a presentation board, large sample case, or other item that would make it convenient for the group, I'd board with first class. If not, I'd wait. I'd be more worried about the impression I gave, not by boarding early, but in that next moment. The one where I am tucked into my big cozy seat, item stowed, already settled, when my boss and fellow travelers come through. No matter what's in my heart and mind, that moment would feel awkward. Do I ignore them? No. But do I really say hello and once again maybe be seen as rubbing it in their faces? Yikes. Not that? A wave? So I can look like a spoiled princess flickering my fingers from my cozy throne? Not if I still want to have any credibility left with my coworkers. If I could say, hey, I got our project safely stowed, see you when we land, I believe I could make that moment okay. <laughs> but otherwise, I'd have to wait to board and probably make sure everyone else went ahead so I didn't have to disrupt their flow to get in my seat. We totally agreed on the suggestions given. I just felt a little sick thinking of this next step. Getting and using the tickets is no big deal, but that's one feature I wouldn't use. Keep doing what you do, please. It's really as awesome as you say. Katie. Katie, I love your feedback. And this is why Dan and I wanted to put the feedback section into the show was because I would not feel that same anxiety about giving a wave. I think I've been in situations where group travel has been divided. And as I walk by the person in front, you know, first class, I, you know, it's much more of a positive joke that they get to be in first class than it ever is a grumbling like, oh, you princess, you know. And so I understand and sympathize completely with where Katie comes from on this for this mentality of like, oh, it feels like I'm getting so much more than they're getting. They're going to think of me as a pampered princess. Like, I love the imagery she draws in this. And I think those anxieties are real and there. And when people feel them. Your, your big question is, do I just say, oh, that's just me having this impression, and so I won't worry about it. I'm being silly. Or do you say, no, that's an impression I really don't want to give. Therefore, I'm going to change my behavior so I don't give it. And both options are totally valid. I like this idea of imagining yourself in the situation yes! where you actually picture and visualize. And this definitely How am I going to interact? took that process to a, a place that I hadn't considered when we first talked about the question because – like you, I'm familiar with this moment where there's that, that first class experience of you're sitting there maybe with your orange juice or your champagne and <laughs> everyone else in quotation marks is now entering the plane. Yeah. Katie, thank you for this feedback. Dale wrote in from Facebook about episode 187, and I loved this perspective. As a formerly very shy child and adult, I really thought your advice to the mother of the shy child was right on point. I was so shy that my great-grandmother, someone I saw monthly, thought I was deaf until I was 18. Also, I paid my younger brother to talk to adults for me. The only thing I will add to this is that the child may stay shy for a time. Maybe a long time, but shy children can be very successful adults. I really appreciated that perspective and encouragement from Dale. I also like these stories about how things get easier as you grow up. And oftentimes those very sometimes adult behaviors that seem out of place in childhood serve us really well later on in life. 
Thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today's postscript is about wedding to-dos one to three months out from the big day. Summer is a big, big wedding season um, all across America. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure all around the world, too. But we are kind of at that stage where if you're getting married in the next three months, you're going to be tackling a lot of these things. It's true. I've got two coming up. I have two this, this summer, too. Fun. <laughs> so... What do you have to keep in mind if you're the one planning one of these weddings? Well, this list runs the gamut, but we'll start off with one of the more technical, and that's that you want to start to notify banks, employers, and other agencies and organizations of any name or address changes that may happen when you get married. If you're changing things legally, you gotta you got to let people know. Details, details, details. You also want to visit your reception site with the site manager to plan the setups, lighting, acoustics, and air circulation. If you're doing a a homespun wedding or if you and your family are in charge of all these things and it's happening maybe on a family or friend's property, you still want to kind of designate someone who's site manager um, so that you can have these conversations and go through these paces. How do things look in different seasons? Where will deliveries be made? That visualization that we talked about earlier, you really want to go through that process. You want to picture things happening. Imagine in very concrete ways people being in this space. You also want to choose the linens and place settings. Yay! (laughs) Coordinate the reception decor and the floral centerpieces with the florist, the reception site manager, and the caterer. Your window of opportunity with those flowers can be so short. This is one of the parts of wedding planning that oftentimes requires the most preparation because they are such precious cargo. They are delicate, definitely delicate. You also, if you are getting married in a gown, want to have the final fitting of your gown and accessories. But I'm just going to expand this and say no matter what your attire is, it is time in these next three months to really make sure that you have it. If you are renting it, that you've you've put in the order to rent it. If it's being made that or needs any alterations, that you have the time to make those happen. Um, a lot of my friends and I end up ordering dresses uh, from... Um, you know, there are these like bridesmaid dress sites, right? Where there's like thousands of dresses all in the same color cut or this type of option. And oftentimes the shipping can be something that is really unreliable on these. And it's, it can be six to eight weeks. And then at Estelle's wedding, one of our bridesmaids, the dress showed up. It was sewn wrong. Just the seam was slashed across the front. It was a complete mess. She had to buy a new dress that was going to work that she could count on actually being physically in her hands. So really need to tighten up all of these attire details within the last three months of wedding planning. Our next piece of advice is a bit more traditional and sometimes actually doesn't even happen anymore. And that's to have your wedding portrait taken if you're if you're getting one done. A lot of folks simply use pictures from the day as their wedding portrait, but at more traditional eras, we've we've gone the route of actually setting up a specific photo shoot. Even though it feels a little close to the wedding to be doing this, this is actually the window where you're going to think about mailing those invitations. I know. it's You think they take so much preparation. You focused on them for so long. And then there's this huge waiting period when you're just sitting on them. But now is the time. Invitations get sent six to eight weeks prior to your wedding date. 
For those of you who would be more comfortable, stick to that eight-week yes, exactly. <laughs> end of that window. You also want to mail your wedding announcement right up to any newspapers. This is, again, a more traditional aspect of wedding planning, but many people love this tradition. And if you are going to make your announcement in any of your local or larger papers, um, sending your submission in during this one- to three-month window is, is appropriate. You'd also want to check with the publication. This is a great time to apply for and obtain a marriage license. If you haven't looked into it already, be sure that the type of ceremony that you're planning qualifies as an official marriage ceremony in your state. Different states have different approaches depending on how you're organizing your ceremony. Maybe a civil service is also going to be necessary. But think about this detail as well. If you're going on a honeymoon right afterwards, you want to make sure that you have tied up all your loose ends, paid your deposits, booked the plane or the travel that you need to book in order to make sure it all happens. This is one of those where you could be so focused on the big day, you forget about the next fun thing that's happening. Have your getaway (laughs) well organized. Exactly, exactly. And along with that, you also want to do any shopping for your going away outfit, which is, again, a traditional outfit. Not as many brides do this. They used to traditionally, you'd go on that honeymoon right afterwards. And so you'd change out of your gown and into your your travel suit and you'd be sent off in your travel suit. You know, it was a big production back in the day. If you are doing such a send off, now would be the time to make sure you've got that outfit and any accessories planned. As the big day approaches, things will get busier and busier. More and more attention will be on guests and social obligations. So Mm -hmm. take care of other details. Book as many of the appointments that you're going to need as necessary. So maybe that's hair, nail, spa. Maybe that's planning a shave or a visit to a barber. Maybe it's a masseuse. (laughs) (laughs) That would be me. I would be that person planning that. (laughs) The sooner you get this done, the more options you're going to have and the less that's going to be on your plate as that big day approaches. Book early. You also want to verify with rehearsal dinner hosts that the invitations have been mailed. This is another one where it's that party that comes just before the wedding. It can be really easy to lose focus on it when you've got the big day, you know, at hand. And so really consider making sure that all of the details are buttoned up for the rehearsal dinner and offer to do anything that you can to help folks with some of these areas. Lizzie Post, you're taking me back. I hope that everybody out there who's thinking about a wedding, who's planning a wedding, is able to approach it with a spirit of, this is going to be fun. Yes. (laughs) And a checklist like this doesn't feel too daunting, but really feels like a good reminder about some of the important points to hit between now and then. Happy, happy wedding planning. I wonder what will happen from now on. I wonder. A lot has happened in the last year. Our first year of marriage. Gee, we got a good start. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today we hear from Anne. Good afternoon, awesome etiquette. I would like to make an etiquette salute to my husband for learning to use his filter. Even his friends were impressed when he told them he had a story to tell them later at a more appropriate time and place. He is also starting to pick up on additional social etiquette items. I was impressed when he knew on which side of the plate to place the oyster fork. I occasionally discuss your podcast with him. So thank you for helping us increase our etiquette awareness. Stay safe after all these nor'easters. Best, Anne. 
And thank you so much. I feel like today, appropriately enough, is like the, the end of winter. It, it, spring had not sprung in Vermont, so I really appreciate the, uh, the comment about the Northeasters. But this is wonderful of etiquette as a tool to help us put filters in place, not to stifle us or to quiet us, but to just make our interactions appropriate ones. I love that he's looking around and seeing, you know, this isn't the time and place for this story, but I'll make sure to find the time and place for the story. I love that. And thank you so much for the salute. I love the encouragement on the self-reflection and that, you know, you can, I don't want to claim any ages here, but teach an old dog new tricks. Anyone over 20 gets to be old. <laughs> it's true. I like the range of impact here. Etiquette right? from from the, the filter. Yeah. Also to just knowing which side of the plate the oyster fork goes on. From the, uh, let's say, the more important to the more detailed. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something. You can send us questions, comments, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, you can leave us a message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, I'm at Daniel underscore Post. And I'm at Lizzie A. Post. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please help us out by becoming a sustaining member. You can visit awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com to get your sustaining membership today. You can also subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and please consider leaving us a review. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Chris.